Welcome to Her Story, a retelling of the biblical narratives featuring women in scripture with Joanne Guarnieri Hagemeyer, Grace and Peace Joanne. Eve is possibly the most well-known woman in the Bible, and her story, along with Adam's, provides the bedrock for biblical doctrines on everything from sin to salvation, as well as the theology of women and men and our relationships to each other and to God. Eve's account is so important, so fundamental, that I've taken it in two parts. I start out with her life in paradise and the serpent's assault of her happiness. Then part two is her life as a castaway, living in the wild of a broken earth. This is part one. Each story in this series was originally produced as YouTube presentations. So links to YouTube, to Grace and Peace Joanne blog posts, and to the books I've written are provided below. Eve's story is perhaps the most iconic for all women, as she is the first of us, the one from whom all of us have come, and her story becomes, in a certain sense, the source of our stories as well. So first, we'll lift back the mists of time and watch as God brought forth humanity as the Lord's crowning act of all creation, and then we'll enter into paradise, as it were, the birthplace of Eve, to see the serpent's seduction. Watch how the whole world changes and conclude with Eve's great losses, and yet also her hope in God's promised future deliverer. Eve's story is iconic. It is epic. And to tell it well, it needs two talks. So I'm going to follow this outline of six divisions that you see here, and then I'm going to split right down the middle of chapter 3, because chapter 3 is like the fulcrum. It goes from that ancient antediluvian time when everything was beautiful and perfection into the world as we know it now. So let's start with being created in the image of God. Up until the end of the sixth day, God moved from one act of creation to the next in a steady crescendo. Now God paused and announced to the universe what was about to come. Let us make humankind in our image after our likeness. A combination of both the word asa, which is to manufacture from substances already in existence, and bara, divine creation, creating something entirely new that never existed before, are used. For humankind was manufactured from the substances of earth, but there was something new here too, something brought into existence which before did not exist. And why did God do all this? Why did God create the universe and then focus on the earth, filling the earth with verdant, vibrant life? Why did the Lord, as God's final masterpiece, create humanity? Because it was very good. Because it brought God pleasure, great pleasure. God created people with a purpose to love and glorify the Lord. God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the air and over every living thing that moves upon the earth. God said, See, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is upon the face of all the earth and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food. This is the world we are to imagine Eve in, a blessed and flourishing world in which she and Adam shared equally in all things, in perfect union with each other, in communion with God, and in harmony with all the earth. 
And in the next division, communing in the light of God, Genesis 2, we imagine seeing the panorama of creation unfold from the height of heaven, and the display is breathtaking, and each revelation is more vibrant than the last. But now in chapter 2, the narrative slows, and we're invited to step into the story at the ground level. We see, as it were, God's spiritual hands digging deep into the rich earth, planting trees and hedges, flowers and fields, salting mountains with gold and precious gems, and scattering the countryside with every kind of creature, and then dredging four broad furrows and filling them with fresh sparkling water, the rivers Pishon and Gion and Tigris and Euphrates. And now, time slows even more, and a hush settles as God clears a small area of red clay, called Adama, in Hebrew. Divine hands mold and craft with deft skill, and soon a form appears, a little creature clothed in glorious light. And God bends and breathes the breath of life into the human's nostrils, and now Adam, creature of clay, the human being, lives. God's blessing included the good work of continuing what God had begun in this garden, the work of tending it. There was only one prohibition, to not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And it's significant that after delivering this grave caution, in the very next sentence of the text, God three in one spoke of the human's need. And the Lord commanded the human being, you may freely eat of every tree of the garden, but... Of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it, you shall die. Then the Lord said, It is not good that the human being should be alone. I will make him a helper as his partner. Not good for Adam, which means human being in Hebrew, to carry on the work alone, to enjoy the garden alone, to develop in relationship with God alone. It was not good for the human being to face the tree of knowledge of good and evil alone. Up to now, everything had been pronounced good. And on the sixth day of creation, Elohim said that everything God had done was very good. And it really was. The earth thrived. And in the protected confines of the garden, the human being thrived, finding joy and satisfaction in the work, love and companionship with God, and all the new creatures to delight human beings' curiosity and creativity. But now God named a not good thing that was happening. And not good in this context means not complete. How could God's beloved person, though, not be complete when the human being was a perfect being in a perfect setting, in perfect fellowship, with perfection personified, the Lord God? Well, the answer is found in God's three-in-one nature. God is Trinity, a community, if you will. It was God's intention from the very beginning to make male and female in the creation of humankind a community. As a more complete expression of God's image, the community of the Trinity. It was not good for the human being to be alone, because humankind was incomplete as a solitary being. Humankind would not be the full revelation of God until there was a unity of community, a union in communion. God spread before the human being all the creatures of the earth and said essentially, Exercise the dominion I've given you. Observe and name all that lives. And as the human being observed and named, he saw each creature had a companion of its own kind. And yet the human being had none. 
Then Elohim closed the human being's eyes in sleep, and the Lord once again brought forth life. God scooped out half of the creature's clay, already filled with the breath of life, and began to fashion a new person, just like Adam, yet also not like Adam. She was something new. God took from Adam's essence. The word rib is much better translated side, indicating God took a significant portion of Adam's body to form the woman and created a suitable counterpart to Adam. The Hebrew word translated helper here is ezer, and ezer in scripture usually refers to God in the Lord's relationship to God's people and means far more than the word helper might imply. The word ezer originally had two roots. One meant to rescue and to save, and the other meant to be strong. The next word, fit, is konegdo in Hebrew. Konegdo means corresponding to. Put together, these words could be translated as God saying, I will make a power or strength corresponding to Adam, or the man, the human being who had already been made. God would make for the man a woman fully his equal and fully his match. And together with God, they would form a flourishing vibrant community in the very image and likeness of God, three in one. And God's plan was for a woman to correspond to man as someone to share not only his life as a companion, but his work and responsibilities as well. Woman was to be a partner comparable to man, an equally valued human being, and an equal participant in God's commission and blessing. God created woman to be the counterpart of man in life. It was God's stated plan in the beginning that men and women should be together, working with a common purpose in life. The woman would be a companion like the man who would be strong for him and with him, one who would even at times save and rescue him. God made woman to share with man a mutual concern and responsibility, a shared commission to govern the earth with united commitment to each other that reflected God's own eternal three-in-one being of equal deity and power. God is glorified when God's purpose for human union is followed. And so imagine God and the woman together waiting in joyful anticipation as the first person opened his eyes. Imagine the woman's thrill of elation as Adam instantly realized she was from his own body and breath, the perfect one for him. Imagine her nodding in excitement as he exclaimed, bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh, and her incandescent delight, as he realized he was a man and exclaimed she was, in Hebrew, Isha, a woman. Isha is, well, Ish is Hebrew for man, because he could see that she was made from the same substance as himself, made to fit who he was in a perfect way, filled with the same breath as his breath, unique among all creation, corresponding to him alone. And the second part of the word, shah, can refer to being soft to the touch, denoting woman as having a special feminine nature, different from man. She was soft human. In the woman's first moments of life, she was embraced by one who loved her deeply from his heart. She had come from man, had literally been of one body with him, and now in perfect union, the woman experienced a new oneness, a oneness of flesh as the man wove his life around hers as a vine wraps itself around a tree. For that is the meaning of the Hebrew word, tabak. Clothed in glorious luminescence, she walked with him in the light of God, communing with each other 
and with God. And both of them were naked, and the woman and her man, and they were not ashamed. But then calamity came into the garden of God. Is it possible the tree of knowledge of good and evil was already providing wisdom in the knowledge of good, for it represented more than anything else an alliance? In Genesis 1, God blessed women and men and gave them instructions for how to govern and develop the earth. As Genesis 2 unfolded, it became clear that God intended the fulfillment of these instructions to be a process. Women and men would learn how to work and take care of the earth by first learning to work and take care of the Garden of Eden. Humankind would learn how to wisely govern all creatures by first studying and naming them. Husbands and wives would become one in marriage through the process of being open and vulnerable and transparent with each other, in loving communion with God and unity with each other, and eventually they would learn how to be community as families and then clans and then tribes and people groups and nations. So far, only God and humankind are at the center of the story. And it's unknown how long this time of joy and growth and intimate communion lasted. But now in Genesis 3, a new being is introduced, a speaking serpent. Now in context, there is very little to help us understand what this thing is or where it came from. Clearly, it had to have been created by God who created all things, everything there is. And presumably, it too had initially been pronounced good, even very good. It was counted among the wild animals, yet also permitted to be among the creatures of the protected garden. And perhaps the serpent had also been examined and named by the man. Most notably, of all the wild animals that existed, the serpent was the craftiest. Now, arom in Hebrew means shrewd, sometimes prudent and sensible, yet often associated with those who are plotting secret plans. The crafty conceal knowledge for purposes of manipulation and strategy. A crafty person also considers every angle and is wise in knowing that understanding every angle provides great advantage over people and situations. In contrast, the man and the woman are described as arumim, the word for naked, but also without guile, for they were unashamed. From this one word, the serpent is revealed as one who had plotted to undermine the man and the woman and the process God had put forth of developing them into mature beings. The serpent's strategy was to manipulate the young couple into questioning the love and goodness and integrity of God enough to doubt God's warning and to test the truthfulness of God's caution. And from this one word, Arum, we can surmise the serpent held no love for God or for these two beings, into whom the Lord had poured so much love and care. The serpent was their enemy, and God's enemy. Yet because it was crafty, it was able to conceal this truth from the woman and the man. Now, it's difficult to tell from the English translation. However, in Hebrew, the serpent used the plural form of you when it spoke, making it clear its questions and assurances, even though directed to the woman, were intended to apply to both persons. And because of its craftiness, the serpent was able to deceive and seduce the woman into believing it. Now, much has been made about the woman's response to the serpent's question regarding the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. 
Why had she added words to God's original command? Why did she believe the serpent? Why was she even engaged in conversation with the serpent? Why did the man, even though he was with her, remain silent? Why was the tree in there in the first place? Why would God permit such a one as the serpent to slither into paradise and insinuate its evil into all that God had pronounced? Very good. Well, an answer or part of the answer might be that the process of maturing includes willing cooperation with God and the free choice of love and commitment to God. The man and the woman were good, and they had the ability to stay that way as they grew in knowledge and wisdom. So God put before these two people a test of their continued commitment to love God, to listen to God, to believe God and trust God and turn to God. God gave them the liberty to choose good and reject evil through the Lord's ban on one tree in the garden. Through continually choosing good, through trusting God and following God's instructions and rejecting evil, which in this case, evil would be distrusting God and ignoring God's counsel and violating God's instructions, this tiny community of two people would experience spiritual growth together, maturing of their character and increasing joy. And the man and the woman's faith would grow strong, preparing them for greater work, work that would require greater faith. Because after all, There was a whole, wild, unsubdued planet out there beyond Eden, waiting for humankind to come into its destiny. God's one prohibition here was designed to strengthen the man and the woman in their commitment to God, both individually in their own discipline and together as they helped each other and were strong for each other and encouraged each other and on occasion rescued each other. To disobey God would bring death, and that's a spiritual law. Like the laws of physics, this spiritual law explains something that simply is so. In order to strengthen their faith to enable the man and the woman to one day resist much greater evils down the road, God was now presenting the man and the woman with this much smaller test in the middle of a very safe place where every possible desire could be met. The truth of the tree's nature had always been evident. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise. But how? How could the tree make them wise? The tree was not magical. There was nothing mystical about it, even though the serpent insinuated that the fruit held power, and to have that power they must eat it in deliberate rejection of God's warning. But the true answer had little to do with the tree. You see, I think it could have been any tree because I think the tree itself was ordinary. The truth had to do with their choosing. The truth was about their loyalty and their faithfulness, about their trust in God. They already had the basic components for knowing good. Good is who God is. Good is what God says and what God provides. It is good. It is very good. Evil, on the other hand, is anything contrary to God and contrary to God's words and God's ways. The beginning of wisdom comes from reverence for God, trusting God and being faithful to God's word and ways. Growing in the knowledge of good and evil from the perspective of goodness would have come from trusting in and alignment with all that is good, God. 
and God's words and ways. When they disobeyed God, suddenly the eyes of both of them were opened. But tragically, they realized they were naked. Both the woman and the man felt exposed, suddenly vulnerable in a way that felt risky and shaming, and their deep communion with God was broken, and they were now terrified of the Lord, so they ran and they hid from God when God came to them in the garden. Instead of gaining God's knowledge, their minds were now clouded, and humankind lost the knowledge of the mystery of God's will and the purpose for the universe and for themselves, revealing the corruption of their inner beings. And abruptly, Instead of no shame, they felt for the first time feelings of exposure and guilt and deep shame, and instead of intimacy, they set about covering themselves from each other and from God. Instead of living in the truth, the man laid the blame for his own wrongdoing on others, and the woman realized that she'd been deceived. All gave evidence of another aspect of God's warning about death because their innocent natures had become corrupted. The woman heard God's now frightening voice ask them, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? And her man, the man who had loved her deeply and woven his life around her, now revealed the shift in his alliance away from God and from her. He had moved towards the serpent. The man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me She gave me fruit from the tree, and I ate. Did she gasp when the man chose not to answer God's first question? Did frightened dismay turn into a broken heart and crushed dreams when the man without hesitation cast blame on her and on God? What did she think when it became clear the man intended to hide the serpent's involvement? Rather than respond to the man, God turned to the woman and asked, What is this that you've done? The woman, unlike the man, exposed the serpent while also admitting her own transgression. Perhaps she sensed God's approval of her frank honesty and simple confession because God did not ask the serpent what it had done. And that revealed that God already knew of the man's intent to protect the serpent and God's affirmation of the truth the woman had spoken, that she had been deceived, and now her eyes were opened. The rest of Eve's story is going to be found in Eve, part two. O Lord God, creator of all that is, and lover of humankind, lover of us, how thankful we are that you spared these two instant death. And so we ask that as we think about the redemption that you offered them, that you would also fill us with a great thanksgiving for the redemption you offer us as well. And we pray to the praise of your grace. Amen. How did Eve handle the heartbreak of her world shattered? Let's listen to her story in the upcoming podcast, Eve, Part 2.